The Feeling Sound podcast is brought to you in association with Urbanista. Urbanista is an online magazine for creatives where you can reach a like-minded audience of fellow urbanistas. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Feeling Sound podcast. Well, this time round we've got something quite special. This is part one of a two-part episode with Douglas T. Stewart of the BMX Bandits. Glaswegian Douglas T. Stewart has been the leader and chief songwriter of BMX Bandits since 1985. The Guardian newspaper once called him Britain's ultimate cult group and it was Kurt Cobain who famously said, if I could be in any other band, it would be the BMX Bandits and he also wore their t-shirts. I think it's fair to say that Douglas and BMX Bandits have been very, very influential over the years. The BMX Bandits have released 16 albums internationally, and Douglas has collaborated with music legends such as Dan Penn, Chip Taylor, Alex Chilton, and Kim Foley. Douglas is no stranger to collaboration. In fact, I think he's the archetypal example of a perfect collaborator. He's generous, creative, mischievous, and there's always something different about what Douglas brings. His last single, the BMX Bandits' Razor Blades and Honey, was a collaboration with Anton Newcomb of the Brian Jonestown Massacre and Hi-Fi Sean. So here goes with part one of the episode, where I caught up with Douglas in his home and we had a chat about his life in music, some of his collaborations, and most importantly, what music means to him. Maybe you could give us the potted history behind uh, the BMX Bandits and how you first got into music, Douglas. BMX Bandits have been going since 1985. And I guess we're not, in some ways, almost like a conventional band. Some people have said it's a bit like The Fall because I'm the one member that's been there all the time. And if I'm on stage or if I'm on a record, it's a BMX Bandits record. But rather than a conventional group... It's not always the same five people or four people or whatever. It's sort of almost like an extended musical family where, you know, I'm the centre of it. Um, But it's not all me, you know. It's very much a thing about collaboration. So, you know, um, I think sometimes when there's one um, permanent member that runs through a thing, sometimes they like to create the illusion that's really all them and the other people that have been part of that journey aren't necessarily important contributors because they could be swapped with anybody. That's definitely not the way I see BMX Bandits. You know, I've been incredibly lucky to have people, and I'm just going to pick a few, um, not to uh, lessen the contributions of others, people like Norman Blake, who went on to be in Teenage Fan Club, Sean Dixon, who went on to be in the Soup Dragons, and now does the Hi-Fi Sean projects, uh, people like Francis McDonald, David Scott, the Peril Fishers, more recently people like Stuart Kidd, and most recently a guy called Andrew Patty I've been working with a lot. There's a lot of different people, you know, my partner Chloe Phillips been a contributor for the last few years. Um, so we're definitely um, a sort of extended family, also in the way that Occasionally someone like Norman, who officially left the band BMX Bandits in, I think, 1991, will occasionally call up and go, I'm a bit of a loose end, I saw you've got a a gig. Do you fancy an extra guitarist? Or someone to drive? Or, you know, I think he's appeared on every BMX Bandits album since he's left, except one. You know, so 
Um, it's a, I all very often use the analogy of um, Hotel California. With BMX Bandits, you can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. I think that there's something special about that kind of level of collaboration, though, because, I mean, you're obviously friends with these people. They st- they stay friends, and, and different ingredients come together to make an incredibly interesting recipe. Yeah, it's a funny thing. I think a lot of people, when there's a band and there's maybe, like, two main uh, songwriters who work together and one of those people leave, it's seen as a sort of crisis, but I think um, I've always seen it almost like an opportunity. Yeah, I understand that as well, Douglas. I do understand that because because there's a freshness about what different people bring. And sometimes when people go away and come back, they come back with fresh ideas. And that can only be good for you. Yeah. And it's um, of course it's always worrying because someone like, you know, uh, there was a point where like uh, many years ago, Norman was the other main writer. And he's such a great writer and such a musical person and really creative and you know great harmony singer and musician you go oh oh we're losing him and at first it can be a little bit you know um sad stroke worrying that he's not going to be as big a part maybe of the story as he'd been before but then you you discover oh wait a minute there's now this person who'll bring these new colors to the palette you know, and it is, it's a, and it's a great thing, you know. What's your earliest memory of music, Doug? What, 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 what was the first stuff that you listened to when you were younger that made you think, I want to do this? My first big memory of music is actually from 1969. The BBC had their big coverage of the moon landings and interspersed with us. And I mean, I always thought this is, well, I don't think I realised it at the time, a really clever bit of programming. They kind of interspersed with that. They had a run of the TV series The Adventures of Robinson Crusoe, which, you know, man, you know, lost far from home, will he get back again? And the moon landing stuff seemed appropriate. But the thing that I remember um, very vividly was the music from that programme, which was uh, written by uh, Gian Piero uh, Riverberini and uh, Robert Mellon and um, it's funny because it's a European series there used to be a lot of that when I was kind of growing up you'd get this European series that would be dubbed into English and sometimes it'd have pretty interesting music and what sometimes would happen though because I assumed partly from the names that they were European writers because it was this European series but sometimes what happened would be something like the BBC would buy in a programme like The Adventures of Robinson Crusoe or The Magic Roundabout and they wouldn't get what you would get now where you'd have the actors' voices on one track and the soundtrack in something else and then sound effects in something else and they could just take out the English language dialogue and replace it. They would have to take the whole audio track out and replace it. And that's what happened with the adventures of Robinson Crusoe. So if you find, if you went to France or Germany and bought a CD of a soundtrack of that, um, and I have listened to this, you get this quite trite, very standard kind of um, naval theme sounding music. Um, and the British soundtrack, which was created brand new with all the British stuff, uh, was just incredible.
now I look back at it and think, is this the starting point of so, you know, almost, uh, I guess, creating my taste? You know, because um, when I listen to that music, I hear things like Pet Sounds, Brian Wilson. I hear uh, Serge Gainsbourg stuff. I hear Ennio Morricone stuff. All in that kind of, that world that that soundtrack created. And one of the big things I really remember about it was um, it sort of made me feel sad, the music. I had a really melancholic sort of thing about it. But I liked the feeling. I liked how it made me feel sad. It was like a kind of sad beauty. And um, yeah, I really bought into that. I mean, years later, 1977, one of the other big key ones was my sister came, or my older sister came home from high school and she just kind of groovy geography teacher who used to play like albums on a record player in the class when they were doing her work. And he'd play this record by a guy called Jonathan Richmond with his band of Modern Lovers. And she described the record to me. And I fell in love with that just from her description. I was like, this sounds amazing. And I went up to Woolworths in Bell Sill and I bought a copy of it. And the cover was like so different than kind of standard kind of mean and moody uh, rock covers of the time. And the music just felt so inclusive and celebratory that I really just instantly connected to it. I loved the fact like my dad would come into the living room or, you know, younger kids who live near us would hear it and it, it would fill them with joy and connect with them. I like, so for me, BMX Bandits, I guess in a way we are seen as a sort of cult band uh, or whatever, but I, I always wanted to be very, very inclusive and not have that thing of, um, you know, only for cool people between the ages of such and such wearing the right clothes. That was never my thing. Because so much of music I loved. Again, things like music that people like the Sherman Brothers did for like Disney movies like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Well, it's not a Disney movie, but they did Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Mary Poppins, The Jungle Book, stuff like that. That probably was more important to me than things like Bob Dylan. You know, I like some Bob Dylan records, but that... Can I, I think inform my tastes more? Melody and counter melodies and um Something that I guess uh, people like the Beatles and the Beach Boys, Jonathan Richmond, all used a lot in their music. People like Ennio Morricone uses is again humour, not comedy, but humour's a big thing. Humour, poignancy, melody, counter melodies—that's the stuff that it, it, it's always excited me.
It strikes me that there's a, a theme running through a lot of the background to what I consider to be the BMX Bandit's sound. And that's that a lot of it is very film score-ish um, and very European film score-ish. I'm instantly reminded of Christoph Comida and some of his film scores I think are fantastic. What about that? What about that kind of whole film score thing? Totally, totally. Well, as I, say, I said earlier, you know, the... I mean, okay, it was a television series, not a movie, but the music from The Adventures of Robinson Crusoe, you know, was possibly my endpoint to just how much music could affect me. I've always been a bit of a cinephile. You know, I've always, um, my parents were always really interested in my sister was interested in going out and playing in her bike and playing football and climbing trees. And I was interested in staying at home watching movies. And a big part of the movies for me was always the music. You know, I would... Watch a film like Jack Lemmon and Terry Thomas and um, a film called How to Murder Your Wife. Not see it for 20 years, but be able to remember key themes and replay them in my head. You know, and things like, uh, before I really knew who some of these people were, like people like Ennio Morricone, you know, uh, he's a real big one for me. I guess most people, I either know Ennio Morricone from... Uh, what people, I guess, call spaghetti westerns, things like Good, the Bad and the Ugly, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, or things like Cinema Paradiso in the Mission, you know, I think very often. But he, he wrote something like 400 scores. And at one time, you know, I had probably over 100 of Morricone's scores um, for a lot of things like Giallo movies, which are kind of quite violent, sexy Italian thrillers, um... And some of the movies I never saw, or some of the movies I saw and didn't think were necessarily even that great, but the music was just so exciting. Uh, one of my favourite projects I was ever involved in was um, my friend David Scott, who, as I said, is a member of the Perlfishers, but has been a big part of BMX Bandit's family for a while, put together a series of concerts called Mondo Morricone, which we toured around various places in Scotland and that was before he'd actually ever played a concert in Britain and we were doing you know versions of uh, some of his well-known themes that probably everybody would recognize but also a lot of the kind of less well-known stuff written for giallo movies and stuff like that and also he wrote a lot of songs you know which are theme songs from a lot of the movies uh, song, you know, which were originally maybe sung by people like Astrid Gilberto and Scott Walker and things. And we'd be doing versions of these songs in that show. And I've always loved those kind of projects because what a way to learn. You know, you do you do something like that and you're pulling all the parts apart and then putting them back together again. Um, and, and that, I think both David and I would say, that was such an amazing education for both of us. And, and doing stuff like those projects, because we did one for Serge Gainsbourg music and we did one for uh, Brian Molson before he really started touring again, where we were doing some of the more, at that time, less well-known stuff like Smile and stuff by Brian Molson. We were doing stuff like that live. The next time you go into the studio, you've got a whole new arsenal of tricks up your sleeve, you know, that you can apply to your own stuff. You can hear all of that in the back of a lot of your music. Give me one track that would be your go-to track. My favourite one is possibly one called Mete Una Sera Escena. For me, it's just so elegant and he'll have certain themes 
that will start playing and then that same theme will switch to another instrument and another little theme will come into the thing and become almost like the main one while the other ones went in the background and you'll have all these um, different kind of counter melodies with their own kind of time signatures all going and they all fit together so beautifully but it almost makes you feel dizzy I remember when I first really got into that track, listening to it, you know, like for over 24 hours on a loop. You know, I remember like I was listening to it when my son, who was pretty young at the time, still at primary school, uh, was going off to bed. And in the morning I was still listening to it. (laughs) And he was all very good humoured about this and was interested in, uh, you know, listening to music a lot as well. Uh, would go, I can't believe you're still you're still listening to it. Then he comes home from school and I'm still listening to it because it's almost like I want, you know, I, I don't just want to listen to it. I want to totally, totally devour it and I almost want it to become a little bit like some sort of beautiful disease. I want it to be in my blood. I want it to be infected by it. What do you think it is about music that makes that you, you feel like that though, Doug? I mean, what, what, why? What, what, what is it? Well, as I say, it was that very first feeling. It just transported me. And the other thing I think I love about it is I think a lot of people who find themselves drawn to the arts, whether it's like painting or dance or making music, they maybe find themselves in a real world that they're not fully satisfied with. So they want to create their own version of a world which is more beautiful. And that beauty is there in the world, but it's kind of hidden. You have to almost kind of have the ability to find it and pull it out and kind of create your own slightly more enhanced version of life. It's almost like life can be incredibly beautiful. The other thing I found quite early on was music is this incredible language that can say things that, well, I can't say with words. I mean, I write a lot of lyrics and I write most of the lyrics for BMX bandits but you know we would play in somewhere like Seoul or Tokyo um, and discover a lot of the audience had no idea what we were necessarily singing about just as I have very often if I listen to um, a original language Japanese or Brazilian or Italian music I have no idea what we're necessarily singing about but the music is an international language yeah, for me, music is this international language, and it can say, for me, things that I can't. I feel that I cannot say in words. Whether that's um, having a conversation with someone, uh, even communicating with someone, have a really intimate, you know, and long-lasting relationship with, you know, when I'm sitting with someone like a friend, like David Scott or Norman, uh, or a. Uh, Sean, who I started being expanded with, and recently we've been working again a bit together. It's like, well, we're not the kind of guys who hide our emotions and our feelings, you know. We're, we're able to talk about stuff. But it almost feels the point where we're most connected is when we're making music together. 
and there's things being said in this language that doesn't use words. So that, for me, is an amazing thing. And it's, as I say, um, it's interesting when Japan's been a big part of the BMX Bandit story, or kind of fan base in Japan and the support of that. And um, for me, I, I, I found it really interesting that Japanese people, much more than a British audience or an American audience in general, really embrace so much music that they don't necessarily know what the words are about. And it doesn't really matter. You know, um, they they have a real diversity to their music days. And I think they understand that the language that's important there is in the notes, is in the arrangement, is in the harmony, is in the voices. You know, so sometimes the words are important, but we're not necessarily even important from... You know, the story that they tell or the narrative, they're important in the sound of the words and the emotions that are expressed through the singer and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I just I just think it's a kind of magical thing. And I think another thing about a lot of people who are attracted to performance and the arts is sometimes they, surprisingly sometimes for their followers, they don't necessarily feel that they're socially that able compared to a lot of people. They feel that in some ways that they have difficulty communicating with people as like a, like regular human beings might, but they have this other thing that they can communicate from, you know. It's like when I meet very often friends who've been making music for a long time, or even kind of younger, because I'm friends with quite a lot of younger musicians, nearly always it's almost like the first thing we want to talk about as musical experiences we've been having recently, whether that's as a fan or music we've been meeting. You know, it's like um, my friend Tim Burgess from the Charlatans was in town recently, you know, and we've not seen each other for a good few months. And the very first thing is like, so what are you listening to? <laughs> that's it though, isn't it? I mean, and, and, and that's the thing about it for me is the one thing that I think I've taken from every single episode I've done so far it's just how much we share music. Yeah. And making mixtapes was always a massive thing for me when I was younger as well. You know, and lots of people, I think, I think definitely in our kind of musical community, I was one of the people that was really known for that. You know, I, I meet things like people are just that little bit younger than me. Like the, the I, I often say the kids who are in Bell Sebastian, they're all about 50 or something now. But in my head, uh, you know, they'll say, you know, remember things like the first time they went to America, I made them all up a mi- There was about eight of them in the band, and I made them all a mixtape. And it was all the same mixtape, but it was like eight individual copies of it, which I didn't even make one and then copy that from tape to tape. I didn't really have that technology. People go, oh, that's really generous. And it's like, no, I loved it. I loved the fact that I almost had them in my grasp and could go listen to this. Yeah, there's something amazing about discovering new music, I think, as well. Because for, for you and I, possibly, we can think, oh, that sounds a lot like that, or this, or that. You know, like, for example, I, I can hear pet sounds in your, in your music. I can hear all kinds of different influences. And it gives me an idea of where you were formulating all these different things from. But you've got such an eclectic mix of stuff. For you, it's, it, it must be encyclopedic, almost, with the knowledge. Yeah, well, people say that, but you always... The great thing is that I've, again, discovered is, you know, I would think to myself, oh, yeah, well, I, I'm 
you know, one of the go-to guys regarding things like uh, American kind of soft pop of the kind of late 1960s, the kind of arrangers, songwriters, artists. And then just a few weeks ago, somebody goes, have you heard of the Children of Prague? And I'm like, the Children of Prague? I don't know that. You can virtually find nothing about it. And it's a soft, a kind of a soft pop record where um, the band who I think was really it was a producer's project. There wasn't, there was never really a band called that. It was a producer arranger who went in and made an album of kind of soft pop cover versions of songs by the Sherman Brothers, the guys who wrote for all those songs for Disney, and songs that their dad had written, because their dad was a kind of big songwriter in the kind of nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties. And suddenly I'm like, what? Where was this? Where was this one? You know, how did I miss that? It's Harper's Bazaar like um, soft pop stroke bubblegum pop kind of style. There's always new music that is new music that I'm excited about discovering. But there's always old records that are new to me, even though compared to a lot of people, I feel I know a lot of stuff. There's always going to be some old record that suddenly becomes new for me. Let's go back a little bit in time to, to when you were discovering, you know, yourself as a musician in, in whatever capacity that was. When, when was. How did that come about? What was it? Did you learn an instrument? Were you in, were you interested in singing? How did it work? Well, um, I was totally um, obsessional about the idea that I had to learn guitar. And so my, there was like a couple of um, teachers at my primary school who were running guitar classes. I think it was in like a Wednesday um, after school. And so I started doing that and it was very much just strum, 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 strum. And I felt like I wasn't really getting anywhere. And also it was kind of frustrating because I was almost instantly wanting to do this stuff that I couldn't possibly do instantly. They were quite young teachers who moved on to another school. So then there was a guy who lived quite near us who taught, I think, quite a few different instruments. And I went to guitar lessons with him for about five years, uh, which most of the kids didn't do. But I never really got any good. But in my head, I didn't really know how, because I didn't have other friends really playing instruments at that time, so I didn't really know how bad or how good I was. And um, he he had a kind of concert of all of these pupils. So maybe about, I don't know, it could have been eight, it could be 12 or 14 kids. Um, and he had a little meeting and they were kind of going. And I was a person who'd been going much longer than everyone else. And he was like, okay, um, first thing first, um, obviously most of you are going to be playing guitar, but... Um, We've got a really important job we need someone to do, and that is to play tambourine. And um, we're going to get Douglas to do that. And I instantly, even as a kid, knew he was basically saying, Douglas is hopeless. But I could hear his stuff. I could always, you know, when I guess I was on about eight or something like that, I started writing little songs, you know, and I would be singing them to the class and doing a little kind of show for the class. And, you know, um, at playtime, I'd be standing on the wall between the two different sides of the playground doing little shows, which would have me doing impersonations and some jokes and then a couple of songs I'd written, kind of. So I could always, I could hear what I wanted. 
And when I was singing them, I would be sort of hearing an arrangement like you would be getting in some Disney movie or in some old style musical with Gene Kelly. I'd hear it in my head. But I think um, I sort of learned that I wasn't necessarily the person who could make what I heard come to life. Then I met well, I already knew Norman Blake, but um, he was a little bit, he was a year younger than me. And at that time, that still felt quite a lot. And his parents owned a kind of local shop uh, near where I lived. And But I became friends with him. We discovered that we were the weirdos who were into the records that other people in our classes didn't know. We weren't just into the stuff that was on the radio all the time. And he introduced me to Sean Dixon, and I was like, you know, very quite quickly. I was like, these guys, could, these guys have got those skills, those skills that I don't have, where I can hear things, but they can actually make it a reality, and make it probably better than what even I would hear at that time. And I think the three of us, um, we made a really strong team because I think we all really were able to pick up on other things that the, each of the corners of the triangle had their own particular strengths, you know, and I was probably the person that was like the natural performer. In some ways, I was possibly the shyest of the three, but when we were on stage, I was the person that was able to do that stuff. And so I think there were certain things about that sort of stuff that the the other guys probably enhanced through the three of us being together and you know uh, I would definitely be able to use their musicality you know um, and they would you know sometimes like Sean and I would write a song and Sean basically would be in charge of the music and I would be doing lyrics or whatever but sometimes it would be a, a melody and a kind of idea that I had musically, and Sean or Norman would, rather than them writing the melody, they would find the chords for it and, you know, help me put together a kind of arrangement that partly I had in my head and partly things that they were bringing to it. And, um, yeah, so I was very, very kind of blessed. It was like, um, and all through my kind of history of making music, I was always very, very lucky to find people who would sort of trust me that there was something there. And I still don't really know a lot of the musical rules. You know, I'll, I'll usually when I start writing with a new person as a kind of the main writer or whatever, or main co-writer for a project, you know, I'll be doing something and I'll talk about and then it goes here and, and quite often there will be a point where I go, that doesn't really happen in music. That doesn't make sense. But let's try it. And then you try it and you go, that works. How does that work? That doesn't make sense if that would, you know, but that, um, you know, leads you somewhere that maybe is unexpected. It's like um, <clears throat> a, a Paul Simonon of The Clash. A lot of his bass lines were really interesting because I don't think he really understood you know, how, what it was meant to do, what good bass playing was meant to be. So he went and played kind of lines that you wouldn't 
you need like like 99 musicians, 99 bass players would not have played. I think if you listen to m almost any of the stuff in the first couple of albums, there's kind of there's unusual things going on in the bass. Just while I've got you on this topic, there's a whole element of you that comes in, so that your voice is almost an instrument in itself. Do you understand what I mean by that? Oh, totally. And I mean, it's funny because there's a kind of reverse thing that um, I very much think of vocals being used as another instrument in the sound palette like a voice instead of it being a trumpet or a little synth line it's a voice playing this okay it may be same words but it's sort of like but the reverse is true i also think of things like the guitar solo as being a voice you know so very often you know if you hear like old arrangements and like uh you know very early disney films or whatever you'll have kind of like um the trees or the, some animal characters kind of going wah, wah, wah. and you can almost go over going oh my dear or that's so sad we're not actually putting any words but you can sort of hear that that instrument and the arrangement or you'll hear something that sounds like some sort of laughter or you know a, a very obvious kind of thing some like uh, it might as well rain until September by Carol King, you know, the pizzicato strings are the rainfall. I don't need sunny skies for things I have to do. Cause I stay home the whole day long and think of you. As far as I'm concerned, each day's a rainy day. So it might as well rain until September. I guess, and I very often when I'm in the studio, or singing a new song idea to people, I go, and this is the bit where the lead character is walking down a kind of snowy road and they've got all this kind of love and hope in their heart and they're waiting when they get home that the parent, their kind of true love is going to like phone them when they get back home. And that's not mentioned anywhere in the lyrics. And the people listening to the track aren't necessarily going to see that picture. But it's about trying to, you know, or I'll say, okay, we're currently in a room where there's a really lovely fire and the kind of glow of the fire um, on, you know, the person's true love's face, you know. And so while you're playing this or while you're singing this, I want you to think of that. Do you think you are a storyteller, Doug? I, I sort of think I am, but not necessarily. I mean, okay, I, I'm pleased with. I am really pleased with some of my lyrics, but I don't. You know, I listen. I I read some people's lyrics or listen to some people's lyrics and go, "Wow, they have such an amazing capacity, kind of very poetic capacity with words." But I don't feel I have. But I feel like you know, I, I I've written some kind of lyrics that are kind of pretty strong. But yeah, I think for me. I'm more of a storyteller in a way that someone like a film director or whatever might be where, and I'm talking about film, kind of film director, 
like someone like Hitchcock or whatever, where almost the least important thing, or Sergio Leone, who made a lot of the spaghetti westerns, the, the, the dialogue was almost the least important factor in the whole film. You know, the story that they were interested in was telling was with, um, you know, editing techniques, uh, lighting, the kind of montage of kind of images. So for me, that's the story. Because I, I, I think a, a lot of time for me in uh, people, I think maybe someone like David Byrne said something like, I'm probably going to misquote it, about, you know, tr- trying to talk about or write about music is... Um, you know, like trying to dance about architecture, you know, and I, I, I could be misquoting it, but I get the concept. Having said it, I love to talk about music because I love to, you know, be in the room, you know, with um, a new friend like yourself or, you know, people I've known for years and go, wow, and then there's this bit that's just like, can you believe that? Can you believe what we're doing there? And, you know, and share that passion, but also with my, yeah, with my own music. And I've definitely felt much more that I was able to defer less to other people's stuff and be more kind of solid on, yeah, this is really what I hear and I want to go there. You know, probably a stage in BMX Spanish Records, some of them I really like earlier on in kind of late 80s, um, maybe very early 90s where some of the tracks, um, there was less of that, there was things like, you know, really nice chords, nice instrumentation, but maybe it wasn't always, to me, capturing the kind of, the picture or the universe that I wanted that song to capture. Let's talk about the BMX Bandits then. Which is your favourite album? And maybe you could describe some of the tracks on that album and, and give me an opportunity to maybe play some. My favourite BMX Bandits album is an album that we made in 2006. I mean, we started in 85, so that's, you know, it's quite far down the line. It's an album called My Chain, and this might... So I'll mention it because I don't want it to sound the wrong way. I'd been probably... Francis McDonald had been in BMX Bandits and had become my main songwriting partner... And he'd been in the band for about 18 years and then there came a point where we parted company. So that was kind of the longest relationship in the band to, you know, have someone moving on. And I guess in many ways he was also, um, it almost became a bit like possibly the musical director for a lot of the stuff we were doing. And so we parted company and I didn't have Francis there anymore. And... I guess at that time he wasn't as interested in a lot of things like soundtracks and records by people like Moondog and uh, a lot of the European kind of stuff that I was really excited about. Um, and he was maybe more interested in making kind of records that were more standard guitar rock. And I don't mean that in any way to be dismissive, you know, and there's a lot more to Francis than just that, but that was probably the direction we were heading in more together. Um, but suddenly um, I realised I was going to be recording this new material primarily with David Scott and it was like, oh, David's the guy that I did the Ennio Morricone and Serge Gainsbourg projects with and he loves things like the music from Mary Poppins and he loves, you know, all of this stuff as much as conventional rock music or, 
you know, a jangly guitar pop. And so um, I think that allowed me, you know, to go, I've got this song that's kind of set in the late 1890s and it's about this man who falls in love with a street urchin who's got a missing front tooth and then it's kind of revealed through the song that this kind of, and this is a, a trope that you'll probably remember from lots of old kind of movies and stories where this young um, lad that he's sort of beginning to develop feelings for is actually uh, a young lady in disguise and at some part in the movie which is the song um, they're transformed you know, into this, um, uh, you know, beautiful young lady in this kind of uh, Victorian kind of landscape, uh, which kind of fantasy landscape. But of course, the song was actually really about me and stuff that was going on in my life. But, you know, so but I could say to, you know, David Scott, well, let's listen to lots of old music songs of that era, which I'd been kind of devouring at that time, and listen to the kind of arrangement things that are going on and stuff like that, you know, and I could say, so if this bit, this is a bit like, um, you know, uh, the boy I love is up in the balcony, mood-wise, but this bit's a bit more like Chinatown, my Chinatown, and this bit's a bit more, and... You know, and again, as the album progressed, you know, I can uh, be able to go, okay, the first few bars of this song, um, Carol King's playing the piano, and then after the first something like eight bars, Todd Rundgren's playing the piano. And a lot of people would go, well, what's the difference? And Todd Rundgren was clearly very influenced by Carol King. But David would know what the difference was. And I would know what the difference was. You know, I could hear it. I, I couldn't play it. But I would know what, you know, the picture that we were trying to create. Um, so, yeah, that, my chain... And it was also interesting because the, the songs were written and recorded pretty much in real time, i.e. the first song was the first song written and it was always going to be the first song in the album. It wasn't like the thing of you record 14 songs and then you decide the order. And then the second song in the album was written about why I wrote the first song. So the first song lasts 4 minutes 22 it's, um, seconds long. The second song in the album is called 4 minutes 22 and it's about the world. Why did I create this world that you've just listened to in song 1? And then song 3 doesn't necessarily explicitly refer to song 2 but it's a reaction to that and then song four so it's like a chain of songs and there's actually a couple of cover versions in it but again they were put in because during the story that was unfolding through the album I would go home and I would hear this song and that would become part of almost the soundtrack to my story and then it'd be an, a reinterpretation of it fitting into the story we were weaving and at the end of that album the album's complete about a week later we recorded a song called Doorways which wasn't on that album but in my head I still always think of it as being it's almost like the chain continues 
and it has continued since then. The song Doorway is one of the things, that was the song I talked about, it starts off Carol King and then becomes Todd Rundgren and then becomes... Um, that song was an example of, um, musically, a lot of my ideas come from, you know, I'll meet someone and they start telling me a story about their life, or I'm in some sort of situation, and I start, because I think I'm such a fan of movies and soundtracks, I start hearing a soundtrack to the thing, you know, or, you know, I'm going home in the bus after hearing the story and I'm replaying the story in my head. And uh, Rachel, who joined the band at that time, was telling me, you know, a story about stuff that she was going through in life. And when I was replaying it in my head, because it was quite an entertaining story, I was hearing this little, like a soundtrack for the, the movie in my mind. And so that became... I kind of was like, well, I'm not going to have that as a soundtrack, like an instrumental. I'll turn it into a pop song, but I'll use the musical themes for that, for the song Doorways. But the lyric will be about me. But it'll, because she's singing it, and, uh, you know, she, uh, she's a woman, it'll seem like it's from the girl's perspective. But it's actually, I'm actually the girl in the story. But the music came from her. So the lyric comes from my experience, but the music's almost like a kind of portrait of her in her own story. So what was the lineup at that time in the band? The main lineup was myself, David Scott, Rachel, Stuart Kidd, and there were some other people who were playing with us live, but they weren't involved so much in the recordings around that time. And, you know, like Norman came in and helped me record a track and stuff like that. But that was, uh, it was quite a stripped down lineup. And nearly all of the tracks, again, that was a new thing for me, uh, for my chain is, we would go in and I would sing my ideas to David, you know, and we would sit for a while, kind of um, working, trying to find like the chords and the kind of rhythms of the instruments and a lot of kind of counter melodies, which, you know, very often I'd be kind of singing to David. And again, because he's such, you know, a talent, he would go, what about we put this in here? And I'm like, yeah, that's way better. That's great. You know, it's probably not a track on my chain that took more than five hours from the moment that I sing it to the person to when the mix is finished. It's like something like five hours. And most of our records since then have been pretty much like that. You know, maybe there's been an occasional one that's been seven hours or it's been done over two days, but it's been done in a three-hour session and a four-hour session. And I really, really like that. And it's not that we don't really pay attention. We're very, very exacting in our heads about the kind of sounds that we want. But it's almost like we've thought about it and obsessed about it so much before we actually start. You know, so I'll have a very strong idea in my head of the world that I want to create and what sounds are in that, what kind of sounds and instruments are in that palette. There must be something quite pure about the way you've done that then. I like people who work fast. 
I just think there's so many records that I know people, and I'm not going to mention who they are, but I've had the experience, even some of the earlier Beam Spanish records, we would have quite a big budget to make an album, you know, and day two we're still listening to snare drum sounds. And there's something about the momentum and the excitement of music making of, I've got this idea, and people go, okay, we'll just go and get this stuff, and we'll get this stuff, and get this stuff, and then we'll maybe have a wee break, and then we'll set that up, and you go, no, it needs to... We need to start recording that in the next five to ten minutes. Is that something the record companies have reacted to badly, or is that something should, that's just the way it is with you? It's the nature of it. I don't think they really, really realise it. Because I think we... It's not like I think we make records that sound kind of shoddy or unfinished or scrappy. Some people might disagree. I don't even mind a lot. I mean, you listen to some like pet sounds, and there's people like coughing, and there's, you know... A bit where you can hear Mike Love talking to someone slightly off mic, but it's still on the tape. So you could sort of say some of those records have kind of a little bit of scrappiness. I, I quite like. I like you know some of the some of the dirt kind of kept in the mix. Um, but I, I I remember being really encouraged when you know I watched documentaries about how David Bowie worked and and uh, you know the the guys would sort of be saying you know so you'd start something like. 10 o'clock and it would get to 4 o'clock and he would go, okay, well that's just finished that one I'm, go- I'm going home from my dinner now you know and it was it's a sort of a I think it's almost um, a reaction to the really tempting thing that people have now because there's just so much stuff you can do and post and polishing things up and like taking everything now and making sure everything's just right it's almost like that thing of, you know, the, the idea of the guy who sneaks into the Louvre Museum every night and adds a few more brush strokes to his masterpiece, you know, and will do that until he dies because he's always trying to get it. And I don't think that stuff nearly, I think it very often makes things less good. Maybe makes them technically better, but it I don't think it's about the technical stuff. I think, I mean, I love some records, you know, where it is much more about technical precision and things. And, you know, I guess I'm like, even like Kraftwerk or um, Steely Dan or something like that. So I admire that. And it's great for them, that level of obsessing. But it's not for me. I want the thing of capturing. It's like capturing lightning in a bottle. People used to talk about that with old records, where it's like, you know, they went in the studio and, and, Two and a half minutes, they captured this an amazing thing. And there would occasionally be someone in the harmonies that's slightly flat in that note or whatever. Or, you know, somebody slightly lost the beat at one point. But man, it sounds amazing. And it's still a record, you know, that the whole world, you know, would would hear at weddings and family gatherings and coming out of a radio and go, wow, that's that just captures something. You know, like Hang On Sloopy by the... McCoys or something like that, the original recording that because they re-record it, but they, you listen to that and you just go, man, that's so exciting. That just sounds so full of life and vibrancy and um, that's a thing I think by recording quickly, you know, that I, that I really love. Stupid 
So you embrace the rawness of it without being um, pedantic about being, you know, everything's got to be right in this specific way. Is that right, Doug? We take it very seriously and we know the sounds that we want and things like that. So we don't, it's not like, I don't see it as we compromise on what we want. Sure. It's just we go for it and commit to it. And if it's right, it's right. Yeah, it's like we put down a brush stroke and we go, that brush stroke's now down. We're not, we're not like going to go, hmm, let's look, should it be one millimetre thinner, that brush stroke? Should it have been a slightly different green? We, we more almost like go, well, we've, we've chosen this sound for these reasons. We've chosen these parts, these harmonies, these counter melody parts for a reason. Let's, let's commit to them. Gotcha. And of course, sometimes occasionally you'll start singing an idea or playing an idea and go, right, that's not working. Let's move on. What about the track Not Knowing You, Douglas? It really is a great track because it almost is like a bit of a kind of like a monologue of your life at the time. The the track Not Knowing You is a, a kind of very key track, I'd say, in um, the album My Chain. And at that time I was working in the BBC, which was in the West End of Glasgow. Um, and I was walking down the street thinking about this kind of thing that was happening in my personal life. And I was really doing what the song was the song tells and so I started actually just singing it I was singing it's a bit like if I was going around a supermarket and I go and now I need a pineapple and now so I was actually singing you know I went walking down the buyer's road and I bumped into the handsome guy who was sort of my rival for this person's affections and I was looking at him going and he you know he's like smiling he's a really nice guy incredibly handsome and I was looking at him kind of going, man, his skin is so perfect. And look, he doesn't have a kind of paunch like me. And he's like, what, 10 years or at least younger. And what a handsome, charming guy. If I, I would fall in love with him in a certain circumstance, you know. And then so we part company and I continue singing my song. So I bumped into this handsome guy, you know. And, you know, I, there's no reason to hate him apart from he's your type. I went walking down the buyer's road I was hoping to find you there Counting all the people who hadn't met you And those that had didn't seem to care Fools don't know what they're missing The little kind of instrumental I think it's so of that era I talked about earlier of things like great TV music like the Robinson Crusoe theme and White Horses or Bell and Sebastian, the TV series, where it has this um, really beautiful poignancy about it. But there's humour in that song. It's a song about heartbreak. But, you know, the, the image of me bumping into this guy, you know, and his perfect skin and his flat little stomach and how I wish that's what it was like. But, but there is humour in there. And I, I think... I. One of the things on my chain and BMX Bandits in general, we didn't want to make it earnest. It was quite a kind of sort of album with real heartbreak and raw emotions in it. But we always wanted to have that thing of a slightly self-effacing humour about me as a narrator. You know, that I knew I was a bit crap. I knew I was a bit pathetic and things like that. And some of my behaviour was a bit, you know, eh, pathetic. So it's almost that thing of like portraying myself and, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of uh, people, when they start making music, they want to make music that makes them seem cool and smart. And I actually like 
when you know I'm writing a song and it makes me seem like a little bit not that smart and a bit daft and a bit vulnerable because that's what I'm like and that's what most of us are like <laughs> there's something about that humor though in what you do and there's also something about the honesty about what you do and how you do it and I think that's why people love you and you are a cult group you know yeah it's a it's a, it's a really amazing thing that you have this ability to make a connection with people who some you won't maybe even meet I think a lot of people do relate to you know and and it's funny and it's People who will have very different situations, but they'll have, there's still just something in the honesty of something, you know, because I've been very fortunate, you know, where, you know, people have approached me in the street or in a record shop or after a show and saying, I was going through such a difficult time. And my best friend through those difficult times was this record you made. And you go, wow, that's a, what, what a, what a wonderful thing. So it's like, sometimes I feel I'm not, compared to some of my friends, is able to make kind of social connections with people and other kind of natural kind of social things like, you know, going down to the pub and going to the game with whatever people. I'm not really good at that sort of stuff. But I go, but I've made connections with these people. Some of them I'll maybe never even meet. But I've still made a connection with other human beings and then, you know, some of them end up becoming, you know, friends who you see years and years later you're still seeing them coming along to shows and having a dialogue out with that and stuff so and all around the world people who if I hadn't made music I would have never met and I know it's obviously that's not unique to us that's a thing but you know so many musicians experience you know just meeting people that their music has become a really incredible friend to them through difficult times and also through wonderful times it's maybe soundtracked some of the best times. You've been listening to the Feeling Sound podcast with me, Mark Reeson. And that was part one of a two-part interview with Douglas T. Stewart. Stay tuned for part two, where we'll find out a little bit more about what the future holds for Douglas and the BMX Bandits. <laughs>